Hello and welcome to the latest Master Investor podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis and today I'm delighted to be joined by Nick Train, who is the co-founder of the fund management boutique Linsel Train, which since its formation just over 20 years ago has been a remarkable uh, success. I think one has to acknowledge that at the outset. Uh, not only you now manage, I think, in excess of, uh, well, in excess of 10 billion pounds of investors' money, but the returns from your main, two main funds, the UK equity and global equity funds, have been very impressive over that period. Uh, and over the last 10 years, for example, the uh, UK equity fund has delivered an annualized return of uh, somewhere north of 10%, comfortably outperforming the all share index. And the global equity fund has uh, delivered a 14% compound annualized rate, uh, also outperforming the rather stronger world index. So long term record has been terrific. But of course, we live in difficult and turbulent times. And uh, in the last couple of years, it's been a little harder going for you, I think, Nick, with your funds. We obviously had COVID, we've had the Ukraine war, we've had higher inflation and so on. And uh, you've lost some funds from your business and outflows, and you've underperformed a little bit over the last couple of years. So against that sort of background, you are a long-term investor, as we know. How do you interpret what's been happening to Linsel Train and its funds over the last couple of years? Well, thank you for the introduction, and let me say hello to whoever is listening to this. And you know, good health, good investment fortune, and all the rest of it. We all need some good fortune, you know. And I think your summary about the development and current state of our business is is accurate. I mean, Mike and I candidly still pinch ourselves, you know, even today, you know, looking at where the business is right now compared to what we might have reasonably expected or, or even hoped for 20 years ago when we set the business up. And uh, yeah, we're proud of the long-term track record. We're proud that we have, to the best of our ability and within the context of what we've always said that we would do, we're proud that we've been able to help savers protect the real value of their precious savings and capital over time. And that's what we're trying as earnestly and as and as sincerely as we can. You're absolutely right that the last two years, I think particularly 2021, was, you know, listen, it was disappointing for us and, you know, we're sure for investors as well. I mean, as you remarked, there's a whole set of circumstances out there which are quite difficult to untangle. But if I wanted to simplify, in my mind anyway, what befell us in 2021, because it has, it bears comparison, I think, with previous episodes in at least my investing career, that 2021 was a big blowout year. And by a blowout in this phase, I mean going up a lot. It was a big blowout year for young technology companies. NASDAQ hit all-time highs. There was a great, we might say, speculative fervor for young, relatively untested technology businesses. And it is perhaps, and let's just signal this because it's not going to change, it is perhaps a failing of Mike and my or our approach to the investment challenge that 
not only don't we think we're, we're not very good at investing in young speculative companies, we absolutely don't do it. And there have been previous episodes when there have been those sort of speculative market conditions when we've lagged and we lagged last year as well. I think that's the central reason for it. Just as the counterfactual here, and listen, I'm truly the last person to say, oh, look at our performance over the last six months. Things are getting better. I hate that. I'm not going to try and impose that on your intelligence, Jonathan, and particularly not on anybody listening to this podcast. But the reality is, since NASDAQ peaked, and who knows how much more, it's down 30%, I think, from its peak, trillions of dollars of value wiped out. Since then, actually, our performance has improved a bit. And my sense that investors are interested in durability and predictability in these sort of circumstances, I feel that that's at the margin, that's helping us a bit currently. But my goodness, 21 was a harrowing year for us. 22 is turning out to be just a full-stop harrowing year for all investors in virtually every asset class, I guess, unless you hold um, you know, cash dollars. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we're living through uh, some kind of perfect storm, I guess. I guess so. the point about this is really that you're not going to change the way you do things because that's what you set out your stall to do. And it's because what you're good at uh, is finding the companies that can deliver, you know, double digit long term returns, you hope, at least over the medium to longer term. But there will be market phases when that just doesn't work for you. And given what's happened this year, I mean, we might re- possibly reflect, I think I would reflect that uh, you know, some of the valuations we saw last year were pretty crazy, frankly, and some of the, the kind of post-vaccine fervor that we saw amongst investors in manifest in many ways, you know, was uh, reminiscent of some past uh, cycles through through which you and I have lived. No, listen, I concur. And, and, you know, even more fundamentally than just agreeing with what you've just said, you know, I think it's, it's so important to convey... Um, I'm an optimist. You know, I'm, I'm as optimistic today as, as I've ever been. And I, actually, I think, I mean, we can talk about that, but I don't think it's completely irrational to be optimistic. But we've no doubt, I have no doubt that what will make stock markets around the world be notably higher in 10 years' time than today, what will make them higher is a combination of technological developments and the wealth and productivity gains that technology advances bring. That is the story of the 21st century to date, and in our view, almost certainly will continue to be the story of the 21st century. Our challenge, which although I say so myself, I thought we managed moderately well up until 2020, was to try and create a a portfolio of businesses that were able to participate in that technology change without us having to take the risk of investing in very young speculative companies. Um, What am I saying here? I think if I'm saying anything useful, I, I really think it would be wrong for investors in general to be too downcast in September 2022. You know, there are some very short lived but at the time, uncomfortable circumstances that we're negotiating, of which the most important is a war. 
you know, let's not forget there is a war that has had a material impact on the cost of energy. Almost all of 2022's really burning issues and problems relate to that spike in energy costs and the disruptions brought about by the war. If that wasn't with us, and one day we won't be at war, once that's behind us, there's plenty of things to be optimistic about. So that's, I think, what I really want to convey. Yes, I mean, it has been very difficult to disentangle the impact of the war and what I think most people would say was a developing inflationary problem that we had before, even before the war started. But it, nothing on the scale which uh, has happened as a result of the war coming on top of that, if you like. And uh, clearly, Mr. Putin knows exactly what he's doing and he has kind of weaponized the energy market and so on, as we all know. But in terms of your funds and your portfolios, you haven't made many changes to them. I would not expect you to make any changes because that's really not what you do. But tell us what you have actually done over the last couple of years, taking into account uh, what's been happening in the broader market environment. Well, again, people, they ask you what you expect to happen. And for us, we might have a view about what might happen, but we would measure that in years, if not possibly decades, and absolutely not in weeks or months. So let me say what we think will happen. I'm partly going to repeat myself, actually, but forgive me. It helps me if I repeat myself. And then just correlate that prediction with what we've been doing in the portfolios. And I'm, I'm talking specifically about the UK equity strategy here, or and particularly the investment trust, actually, Finsbury. How old will I be in 2050? God, I don't even want to think about that. If I'm spared... And we get to 2050 and we look back at the first half of the 21st century. I am as sure as you can be about anything that we'll look back at the first 50 years and we'll say this was a period of unparalleled technological advance. And we now understand that that technological advance created enormous new wealth around the world not just the value of technology companies, but also the productivity gains that technology advances bring to businesses and ultimately to individuals. Now, that optimistic outlook makes us enthusiastic about investing in two kinds of company in particular. The first is businesses that we understand, but in addition, have the ability to exploit technology change to enhance the value of their products and services for their customers. The second type of business that um, we're keen to invest in are companies that own or build premium or luxury products or experiences for customers. We've no doubt that this observable trend for consumers around the world to want to consume better quality products products with a luxury resonance to them, that's going to continue. Sorry, that's my backdrop. The two newest holdings we have in Finsbury Growth and Income Trust that I'd like to claim fit into those perspectives are, first of all, we've initiated a holding in Experian, which I'm sure you're familiar with, Jonathan, and maybe many of our listeners are as well. But let's just say Experian is one of, I would say, only a handful of UK-listed companies that is 
genuinely amongst the very best, if not the best, in the paroxysmal services it offers in the world. And in particular, Experian matches or possibly even is superior to some of its US competitors and rivals. It's a data and analytics company whose products and services are absolutely critical to the financial services industry as, as well as many other important industries. We know it for its credit rating business, but uh, it's much broader than that, of course. The core of it is the credit rating. But as a result of their prominence, dominance in the data gathering necessary to provide a credit rating service, they have information on billions of consumers and hundreds of millions of businesses around the world. And that data, properly protected and anonymized, that data is of extraordinary value to all sorts of businesses around the world because it can help them manage and grow their own businesses. So, yeah, Experian is the biggest credit rating agency in the world. It's a remarkable company. We are lucky. As I say, there's only a handful of companies of this scale quoted in the UK with these sorts of globally competitive advantages. We're lucky to own it. We're lucky it's a UK-listed company. The other company that we've relatively recently invested in, by our standards, that's over the last couple of years. And again, both of these are portfolio positions that we're still gradually increasing. The other one is Fevertree. Fevertree has had a horrendous 2022 as a share price. I dislike it when a share price falls. I mean, it's it's down 60% this year. My God, I dislike that enormously. But that fall has enabled us to carry on building our position in Fever Tree at more and more advantageous prices. And we think that what Fever Tree has already achieved means that, in our view, its share price is undervalued. Um, it is by a very considerable margin the world's premium mixer business. Yeah. But When you look at the clear opportunities for the company to grow its business all around the world, it's evident to us that this could be a business with multiple times higher revenues and profits in three to five years. And given the profitability of the business, that growth ought to be of enormous value to long-term shareholders. What we like about Fevertree is that in our minds, or in my mind, it complements our very long-standing holding in Diageo. Actually, I'm just looking at the numbers. Let me just remind you and, and investors. Diageo started the 21st century. In other words, on the 1st of January 2000, Diageo share price was £5. Today, it's £37.75. So Diageo's stock price is up seven and a half times over the last 22 years. And by the way, sad to say, the FTL share index is only up about 20%. I mean, uh, just abysmal, the performance of the UK stock market over the first two and a bit decades of the 21st century. But Diageo has created a lot of wealth for owners. Why? Because Diageo owns the premium collection 
of spirits brands in the world. It's another unique company quoted on the London stock market that is evidently, like Experian, the best at what it does anywhere in the world. And what's really driving that rising share price for Diageo is this gradual propensity of people around the world to drink less alcohol. You might think that was bad for Diageo, but it isn't. It's good for Diageo. People are drinking less low-quality booze, but drinking more premium and luxury booze. And if you own the biggest collection of premium spirits brands in the world, you're a growth business, and that is as I say, reflected in Diageo's share price. What interests us so much about Fevertree is it offers almost a sort of geared participation into that propensity for consumers around the world to drink more and more premium spirits. Because as Fevertree so sagely reminds us, if three quarters of your premium drink is the mixer and you've spent $20 on a premium spirit, why would you adulterate it with a low-quality mixer? It's a very, very compelling proposition, both well, to the consumer and we think to investors. I suppose the only thing, comment I would make about that is on Fevertree is that, I mean, it is a relatively young company by, compared to some that you own. It came to the market about eight years ago, I think, which is actually longer than I thought it was, but uh, it's still a young company. And I guess that the, the issue is around you know, does the management have the caliber and the commitment to really, you know, build a global business from a, what is a, you know, obviously UK is an important market, but it's, it's a relatively small market. Does it have that ability to do that? And that seems to be some of the concerns that uh, some investors have about it. You said, I think at one point in one of your reports that it could be, you know, either extremely brilliant or it could fail. There's I hope I didn't say that. I'm, I'm sure you're right. But I don't remember putting it quite in those terms. I'm sure you didn't put it in those terms exactly, no, but that was how I read it anyway. No, you make a fair point. Fevertree, I think, is the youngest company that we own in the portfolio. That's not difficult, by the way, because I think the average age of the companies, or at least the important brands and franchises we have in the portfolio, is getting on for 100 years old. You know, we're fascinated by durability and predictability of, of brands. But I think what, what persuaded me to take, let's say, everything's a gamble. Everything ultimately is a gamble. But to take the chance on Fevertree was the fact that it's essentially created a new category. There wasn't a premium mixer category before Fevertree. And therefore, we couldn't invest in a, a heritage version of it because the category just simply hadn't existed before. I mean, the absolute trigger... The absolute trigger to begin buying Fevertree was seeing those co-joint advertisements between Johnny Walker, let's say, and Fevertree Soda Water. The fact that Diageo is prepared to share its brand equity with Fevertree's brand equity in the same image shows how valuable the spirits companies think that Fevertree's quality proposition is for their own brand. So we'll see. We'll see. This has been a Master Investor podcast, one of a series hosted by the professional investor and author Jonathan Davis. For more news, insights, and interviews with leading market experts, please visit the Master Investor website, masterinvestor.co.uk.